Would you pray with me? Father, indeed, it is because of the cross of Jesus that we are able to be here today to gather as Christ's body, to worship you through song, to stand here released from our sin. It's all because of the cross of Jesus Christ. Lord, if it were not for his blood, we would be yet condemned. So, Father, we thank you for the cross of Jesus Christ. We praise you for that ugly, horrific, and beautiful symbol. That ugly cross of death, of uh, of sin and guilt. But it means life for all who believe. Thank you for all who are here today who are believers, who have trusted Jesus for their salvation, who put no trust in their own works for their righteousness, but trust wholly in Jesus. Father, when we believe in that manner, you make us a new creature. You call us your own child. You you make us uh, one of your own, and you, you make it so that we can be obedient to your word. And and Lord, we won't be perfectly obedient to it on this side of heaven. We can grow. And that's what you've called us to do. That's what you've called us to do today is to hear from the word of God and to apply it to our lives in a a manner that, that helps us to be more like our Savior. So Father, we thank you for bringing us here together today. We thank you for the way that you work in us and through us. Father, we ask that you would uh, be with those who are unable to be with us today, that you would bring them back to us. Uh, We pray for uh, our VBS that is starting tonight. We ask that the word of God would go forth clearly. So we pray for Rob as he teaches. We pray for uh, the other teachers and helpers as they uh, help with memory verses and and helping the students understand what the word of God is talking about. And so Lord, we ask... Uh, that you would uh, work in the the lives of these young people, that they would hear the word of God and respond to it. For some, uh, perhaps it'll be responding in faith and and becoming a new creature even today. For others, perhaps it is uh, their opportunity to be challenged by the word of God and to grow more like their Savior. Uh, But Lord, we know that when your word goes forth, it does not come back empty, but it does its work. We thank you for that promise, that that promise is true, uh, whether we're reading the word of God for ourselves in our personal devotions or whether we're proclaiming it to others, your word will do its work. So Lord, do your work in our lives today. We thank you for the way that you do work in us and will work through us. In your son's name we pray, amen. I invite you to join me in the book of Philippians. We're in Philippians chapter two this morning. It is good to be back home. Uh, Pastor Dan was uh, preaching at a camp in Michigan at a wilderness camp. And I don't, I don't know how many stories he has to tell, but I do know this. Elijah would have taken the entire Sunday school hour if I would have let him to talk about his adventures at camp. Uh, so there are stories to be told. Uh, my family uh, and I were at uh, our camp, our regular Baptist camp, as I was leading 
uh, family camp for this past week. It was a, a good time of uh, being under the word of God, of singing praises with a whole lot more people than I'm used to, uh, but it's also good to be home and to sing praises with my church family, so it's, it's good to be back. I invite you to join me in Philippians chapter 2. We will begin in verse number 1. Follow along with me if you would. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. May the Lord bless the proclamation of his word this morning. Our series is The Mind of Christ, and we're getting to the phrase uh, in Scripture where that actually appears as we uh, have been using as our theme verses, Philippians 2, 5, and 6. Today we're actually going to add verse 7. Uh, but the, our series has been the mind of Christ, thinking and being more like Jesus, our Savior and our example. Thinking and being like Jesus. No small task, is it? Yet we have uh, Jesus as our example. As we go through the book of Philippians, we'll see other believers uh, who are examples of this type of life, and we will learn from them as well. Uh, but let's say our theme verse together. Uh, my intent has always been to have our theme verses be Philippians 2, 5 through 8. We've looked at 5 and 6 together. Uh, today we're adding 7. As we're starting chapter 2, we are adding verse 7 to our theme verse. So read it along with me if you would. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Very good. That's Philippians 2, 5 through 7. Today, our theme of our passage is centers on unity, how we, the people of God, should be united with one another. This unity began, this theme began in the closing verses of chapter 1, and that theme grows in today's passage. Then it will reach its peak in the next few verses as we are being implored to be united with Christ. So um, just where we are, where we've been, where we're going it's all about unity right here in this part of Scripture. Our big idea this morning is the gospel creates a unique unity among believers. It's the gospel that is the foundation of our unity. Uh, there are many people that can be united for the same cause, and it shows itself in, uh, in political parties, or it shows itself in uh, movements uh, trying to affect change in a, in a town or in a community. The unity of the gospel, however, is unique. It, it is, first of all, God-given, it is God-focused, and it changes who we are. We were designed as creatures who can recognize and decipher evidence, just as 
Stanley looked at the church and goes, hmm, something's fishy, something's a little different. We have been given the ability to observe things and to decipher evidence. For, for instance, a while back, my youngest managed to get a hold of a bottle of royal blue tempera paint and make a big old mess. And how did I know that he's the one who did it? Well, his arms looked like Smurf arms. <laughs> it was very evident that he is the one who got a hold of that bottle. Now, that bottle had been stored on a responsibly high enough shelf. How he got the bottle is still a mystery, but that's okay. We don't need to solve that one. We knew who had the bottle. The evidence of this toddler vandalism was quite self-explanatory. Paul is not following a blue line of paint, but he is following other evidence in verse 1. There is evidence of gospel change, and if there is evidence of gospel change, then in verse 2, there should be continuing and growing evidence in our relationships. So as he says in verse 1, if we are raised, not that's not what it says, I lost it. So if there is encouragement, I was quoting from Colossians, that's not going to be helpful today. So if there is encouragement in Christ, any comfort in, uh, from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, everything in verse 1 is about evidence. Is there evidence of our Christian life? Now that word if in the Greek is less of a conditional than what we would use, use it in English. Uh, a better translation might actually be assuming. Assuming that there is this evidence, assuming that there is encouragement in Christ and comfort from love and participation in the Spirit, affection and sympathy. If all these things are true, then we'll get to verse 2, complete my joy. So encouragement in Christ. Does your relationship to Jesus affect how you feel? It should. If you are a child of God, if he has made you that new person, the way you feel about life, the way that you think about things ought to change. We ought to be encouraged. Does knowing Christ bring about consolation from your fears or your pains? It should. It doesn't mean that we don't ever experience those fears, but it does mean that we should receive encouragement from Christ through those things. Is there comfort from love? Have you received the blessings that come from being loved by Jesus? Do you produce any comfort in others through your Christ-like love for them? So how does Jesus show his love for us? Yes, he showed his love by dying on the cross for us, but he also continues to show us his love through the church as we love on one another. Do you have any comfort from his love? Is there any participation in the Spirit? That word participation is the word for fellowship. We've talked about that a handful of times in the book of Philippians already. Remember what fellowship is? No, it's not having a snack with someone, although that could be fellowship. Fellowship is that combining of relationship and involvement. Having a, a, a relationship, relating to one another, and also being actively involved in one another's life. So in this instance, uh, this fellowship of the Spirit uh, would, would require not only a relationship to the Spirit, but an activity 
with the Spirit. So if there's activity without relationship, then that's not fellowship. And if there's uh, relationship without uh, active involvement, then that's also not fellowship. So the question here is, is there evidence of relational involvement of the Holy Spirit in your life? Well, how would I know that? Is it going to appear on my forehead? When I look in the mirror? The answer is no, by the way. Don't do that. How am I going to know if, there's, if the Spirit's at work in my life, if I have fellowship with the Spirit? Well, does the Spirit convict you when you sin? When you do something that you know is contrary to the character and nature of God, contrary to the Word of God, He maybe has specifically told us we are to not do that action. You do it, and you don't feel conviction. That's not a good sign. But if the Spirit is convicting you of sin, is the Spirit convincing you of the truth of Scripture? Do you even consider the Spirit's role in your life as you live? Do you consider, how would the Spirit have me live today? Is there any participation of the Spirit? Finally, in verse 1, is there affection and sympathy? Uh, the previous terms that we looked at in verse 1 have some specificity to them. Um, affection and sympathy or, or love and concern would be, would be parallels to, to these terms. These are more generic in nature, but together with all that we see in verse 1 create a very powerful, emotive description of true Christian experience. In other words, our Christian experience must be more than simply going through the actions of going to church or going through the actions of opening my Bible and reading words. Uh, there's a, a holistic view of what the Christian life is like as presented in verse 1. Now, is Paul trying to say that anyone who experiences discouragement, for instance, is not a believer? If, there, if there's encouragement in Christ, we should be... Uh, convinced that that we are indeed truly his children uh, but if we experience discouragement does that mean i'm not a believer well no not at all we experience discouragement from times reread the verse it says so if there is any encouragement in christ he doesn't say always is there any encouragement in christ any comfort and love any participation in the spirit any affection and sympathy that word any does not require these qualities to be at their fullest all the time. That word any suggests that there is evidence. Maybe your whole arm doesn't look like a smurf, but maybe your finger does. There's evidence of the Spirit at work in your life. So verse 1, in essence, is asking, is there evidence in your life that God is at work, that you are His child? If so, verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. There is no doubt in Paul's mind that the believers at Philippi, uh, the, those Christians that he's writing to, that they were indeed God's children. He's not asking them in verse 1 uh, for some kind of diagnostic test for them to apply to one another to see if, if someone is a true believer or not. He's saying, uh, assuming that these things are really happening in your life, that you're really a child of God, then... Make my joy complete. 
Paul already has joy that Christ is producing encouragement and comfort in conjunction with the Holy Spirit, along with affection and sympathy uh, in their lives. Paul already has joy because of the Philippians. So now add to it, complete it, fill up my joy. I have joy, give me more. Fill my joy, make it whole by what? Pursuing unity. So in verse 1, we have the foundation for unity, and that's being a believer, having the gospel of Jesus Christ transform us. Uh, in verse 2, we see the nature of unity or the essence of of unity, and, and he gives us a list of characteristics, ways that we ought to be unified as the body of Christ. He says, have the same mind. Having the same thoughts does not mean that we are mindless automatons who follow a leader. Um, that would be the definition of a cult, not a definition of the church, okay? Uh, but having the same mind means thinking the same way about issues and priorities because we have the same gospel outlook. We're looking at life through the same lens, the lens of Scripture. Being of the same mind starts with our intellect, but goes beyond just knowledge and incorporates our will or our, our desire to do things and our emotions into this, this whole outlook which affects everything. It affects what we do, it affects what we think, it affects how we feel, it affects our attitudes affects everything have the same mind secondly it says have the same love or having the same love our love for one another should have the same basis it's love of jesus christ it's the blood of jesus christ love within the body of christ is not about common activities or interests although i'm sure we share some of those love within the body of christ is about the gospel it's about being rooted in the same Savior and therefore being changed in the same type of people. Today, the world views love as a fleeting emotion, something that is based solely on how one feels, and that may change from day to day. But gospel-grounded love that the church has is a reflection of the love God has shown us. Aren't you glad God's love for us doesn't waver? That it doesn't change based on, well, how we deserve God to feel about us? Because there are days where God would absolutely be just in, well, in taking us out completely. How many days? Well, all of them, actually. Isn't it every day that we would deserve God to take us out? And yet, his mercies are, what, new every morning? He continues, in full accord with the Spirit. I'm using the word Spirit here not to mean the Holy Spirit, but we ought to have the same Spirit. Uh, that's what it means to be in full accord. Uh, so, we're talking about being harmonious with one another. My musicians know what that is. Uh, Perhaps the rest of us have an idea of what that is as well. In music, the main tune of the song is the melody. So if in a group of five, uh, in, in a group, if there are five people singing the melody, all of those five people are singing the exact same notes at the exact same time. At least that's how it's supposed to work, right? That's how most of us sing in congregational singing is we all sing the melody, and that's, that's perfectly fine. 
However, if in our group we have other people who are, uh, we have these five people who are singing melody, but then we have these other people that are singing harmony, they are going to be singing different notes than the melody, but those notes are going to fit. And that's what it means to be harmonious. It means we're doing something different, but what we're doing fits. It's not contrary. It doesn't take away from the melody. As God's people who evidence God's work in our lives, we should strive to do what is fitting for the body of Christ. We, the body of Christ, are to be harmonious. That doesn't mean that everything we do looks the same. It's not going to be the same. We're not all designed to do the same thing. But what we do ought to fit together with what God wants us to be doing. So we're to be of one accord. We are to have uh, one mind. He says, and of one mind, which is repeating how he started it. Um, but I think he has, in, in his repetition, a bit of a different, uh, different direction. It's, it's one of those things, mind it could be thoughts, it can also be intense, and I think he's talking about both in verse 2. Um, so I'm going to call it purpose. We ought to have the same purpose. We as God's people need to be on the same page, as it were. The only way that happens is when we, first of all, learn our purpose from God. And it's a good thing he's told us. He's told us from his word what our purpose is. What is the purpose of man? Well, smarter people than I a long time ago just determined that in boiling down the whole of Scripture into finding a purpose for man, we could boil it down into one sentence to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Right? That is the purpose of man as found in Scripture. What are we as the church supposed to be doing? If we're, on the, if we're supposed to be on the same page, what are we supposed to be doing? Well, we're to be glorifying God, right? But as we have looked at as a church family, um, we are to be making disciples. We have an activity in glorifying God that we are to be doing. We are to be making disciples, helping people know who Jesus is and to live like Jesus. In fact, we spent... I didn't look it up, it was 10 or 12 sermons going through not only what it is to be a disciple maker, but what a disciple should look like. Do you remember those terms? Disciples who worship, grow, and serve. We're, we need to be on the same page if we're going to live out verse 2 of Philippians 2. And, and Paul says, this is going to make my joy complete. I already have joy in what God is doing through you, and I want more joy as you continue to grow, as you continue to be who you're supposed to be in being united for the cause of Christ. So the foundation for unity is the evidence of Christ's work in our lives in verse 1, uh, the essence of unity or the nature of unity being the same mind, same love, same spirit, same purpose. It's found in verse 2. In verses 3 and 4, we find the expression of unity. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Putting away all selfish ambition. Selfish ambition is that feeling of resentfulness based on jealousy and rivalry, or that's the selfish part of selfish ambition. There should not be 
competition or rivalry in the body of Christ. We're in this together. And so what if someone else uh, does a thing similar to you in the body of Christ and they do it better? Who cares? We're in this together. We're fighting for the same goal, the goal of being godly people and helping others be godly people. We're here on the same basis. We are part of God's family because of Jesus Christ, not because any of us is better than one another. We're not. We're here on the same basis. We're here for the same purpose. We're here for the same reason. All it takes is one person to exercise selfish ambition, and our unity is broken, isn't it? That's why Paul uh, breaks down these, others, these other things that we have to do to, that will keep unity from forming. He goes on, he says, no conceit. Conceit is a form of pride that has no basis in reality. So for instance, an eight-year-old who has never hit a baseball could not legitimately walk around and be proud as a great baseball player, right? That would be completely illegitimate because they actually have no skill in being a baseball player. So conceit is pride, but pride without basis. Sometimes we have pride and it's because we are actually kind of good at something. Uh, that pride can also still be our downfall. But he, he's going a step further than just simply pride. He calls it conceit. Conceit is the default natural response that most people have. And so what's going to happen to unity among, say, 50 adults if five or ten of them are, are conceited? We're not going to have unity, are we? What if that percentage is greater? What if it's half or even 100%? If we're all conceited, can we be unified, even under the banner of Christ? No, we can't. So he says, put that away. Instead, put on humility. Humility is the opposite of arrogance. Now, let's not confuse confidence with arrogance. They're not the same thing. Someone can speak or act with confidence and still be humble. But arrogance is an inflated or exaggerated ability uh, or sense of importance. So thinking that my ability is more than what it really is would be arrogance or uh, or thinking that I'm more important than I am would be a sense of arrogance. Humility being the opposite of arrogance is a sober or well-calibrated sense of one's ability or importance. Sometimes I think we think humility is um, some sort of self-deprecating thing where we uh, say, oh, no, I'm nothing. Well, no, that's, that's not humility. That's going actually a step beyond humility. Godly humility would look at a situation, so if I do something well, godly humility would look at that situation and recognize that God gave me the ability and gave the opportunity to, to do that task well and then give him thanks and then find your satisfaction in him, the giver who gave you that skill, gave you that ability. That's, that's biblical humility. It's not saying, oh, everything I do is garbage. No, it's saying that the things that I do well, God has given me the capacity to do that and I give him the praise and thanks for it. Humility also is not natural for people, uh, even in believers. Uh, humility is a discipline that we must work on. So we must first recognize the pride that so easily clouds our judgment and then turn from that pride and, in, and, and with that 
turn to humility. In doing so, we are to, as the verse continues, count others more significant than ourselves. Do you want a recipe to make any relationship successful? Whether we're talking about a husband-wife relationship, a parent-child relationship, a work relationship, whatever the relationship is, have all the parties involved count others greater than themselves, and that relationship is going to work. It's absolutely true in the marriage relationship. If the husband counts the wife as more important than himself, counts her needs as greater than his own needs, and and the wife in return does the same thing to the husband, guess what? Both their needs are going to be satisfied, and that relationship is going to thrive. It's true in the marriage relationship. It's 100% true in the church. If we all adopt an attitude of seeing others as more important than ourselves, the church will become a much more harmonious body than it could be, than it ever could be otherwise. So do you see just how radically different God's people are to live in comparison to the world? The world is constantly bombarding us with messages of live for yourself, put yourself first. The gospel says Jesus already put your needs ahead of his own, right? He did that on the cross, costing him his life. So because he put our needs in front of his needs, so we can legitimately put others ahead of ourselves. We have that example. We have that change in us so that we can do this. So verse 4 says, Let's, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If you never find yourself doing something you don't particularly enjoy along with someone else, uh, you're probably not following this command. I'm not suggesting uh, that everything we do ought to be miserable, but, but there, there should be times. If we're putting others first, if we're putting others' interests first, there should be times where we're doing something and we I mean, truth be told, we'd probably rather be doing something else. Because that's what it takes to be harmonious, is to put others' needs first, to put others first. So a good way to summarize verses 3 and 4 is simply this, selfless humility. Selfless. Not putting our own impulses, wants, or needs first, but putting others first. And humility recognizing that my worth is found in my Savior and in Him alone. Not in my status or my ability or anything else. My worth is found in Him. This creates a unique type of unity. That's all because of the gospel. It's because of Jesus dying for our sin as our high priest, sacrificing Himself so that we might have life by faith in him. So will you put on God's intentions in your life, setting aside your own intentions for the purpose of unifying with other believers? Specifically, these believers, because this is, this is the church we're talking about. This is actually a really big ask, isn't it? Put aside our own intentions, put aside our own desires for the sake of the church. We have this perfect example in Jesus who in unity with the Trinity, I know those words shouldn't go together, should they? In unity, being one with the Father and with the Son, 
And in obedience to the Father, Jesus left behind the glories of heaven to be fully man and suffer on our behalf. This is right where Paul is leading us to in the very next passage, that kenosis of Christ, that emptying of Christ, so that he might humble himself in order to die for us. So Paul is making a very large ask of the people, asking them to set aside their own ambitions and goals, be unified with the body of Christ. Why? Because Christ has done that for us. As for today, like I said, we'll get to the kenosis next time. As for today, we must self-examine. We must look at ourselves. We must look for those pockets of pride and conceit. Check ourselves for evidence of self-ambition. And then, and then confess, admit to God our sin, repent, which is turn away from that sin and strive for the unity he calls for. In addition, in addition to self-examination, uh, we need to help each other. We need to ask for help. There are times where there's sin lurking in our lives that we're blind to. And so we need that, that close companion who knows us well to help us out. Um, we, we were gone all week. There is still some milk in the fridge, and this morning, um, you know where this is going. Uh, I don't know who poured it. Maybe it was Amanda, one of the kids, whatever, poured a, a glass of milk, and Amanda took a sniff of it and goes, it, it smells okay. Uh, here, Kendall, you try it. <laughs> Does it taste okay? It did not. Sometimes it takes someone else's senses for us to really know what's going on right in front of us. It's true with a glass of milk. It's true with our lives. And so in addition to uh, self-examination in trying to find that pride and conceit and get rid of it, put on humility, uh, we need someone who knows us well, someone we can trust. So that means it has to be a two-way street. Uh, we're less likely to be open and honest with someone who is not open and honest with us. We need that accountability, that, that opportunity to be vulnerable with this trusted believer and ask him or her, does my actions, do my character promote unity in the body? It's our call this morning because the gospel does create that unique unity, but we have to stand out of the way of it. We can very easily be the cause of discord, of disunity, in the church when we allow sin to continue in our lives. So as God's children, we have the position of brothers and sisters with one another. So let us pursue unity as found in the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, this passage of scripture that reveals a high goal, helps us think through ways that perhaps we are not living up to what we should be. And Lord, I pray that the Spirit would, would guide us and direct us, would convict us of our sins that are causing disunity in the body of Christ and help us to pursue unity. And we understand that this pursuit of unity is, is not at, at all costs. It's at the, through the, the framework of Scripture that we cling tightly to the truths of Scripture, that we cling tightly to the commands that you have given to the church and how we ought to live, and in doing so, have the same purpose of bringing glory to you and helping others to do the same. 
So Father, we thank you for your word, for its work in our lives this morning. In Jesus' name.